Matthew 6, verses 1 to 8, and then we'll talk about that for a few minutes. So Jesus, again, is speaking at that Sermon on the Mount. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. <coughs> Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Up till now, the Sermon on the Mount seminar, as I'd like to call it, has been mainly focused on our relationship with each other and how that affects our relationship with God. And now you see in this reading a turning in the direction of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's moving towards a better understanding of our relationship with God and the way that we interact with God. It's probably a good idea since we've started several weeks ago on this topic to kind of review the setting. And so I want to tell you again just how this whole thing kind of looked. Uh, we're, we're in the hills of Galilee, we're in the region above uh, the Sea of Galilee or this great lake. It's a giant lake really, but it's not huge in, in, uh, in, in standards of, of say Patoka Lake even, you know. Patoka's probably covering a lot more uh, shoreline in certain respects, but it is a big lake. It's a beautiful lake, it's a very deep lake. And on its northwestern uh, shores, it's really green and beautiful. And uh, there's always a breeze and the palm trees have a sort of constant flowing of puffing up and down and hissing in the wind. It's really a beautiful place. Capernaum is gorgeous. Uh, it's dead, though. It's an archaeological site. It's exactly as Jesus predicted it would be when he said, woe to you, Capernaum and some other cities. But nevertheless, it's a beautiful location, and this place where this Sermon on the Mount seminar happened is no doubt uh, was just as pretty on that day when Jesus was speaking. And the people had moved out of the town of Capernaum and the other sea uh, uh, fishing villages along the Sea of Galilee uh, because they were getting overcrowded. So many people had flocked to this area to hear this notoriety of Jesus had been such that he came, I still struggle with that word. Anybody remember a few weeks ago, I couldn't figure out how to say that. I'm still doing it. So anyway, we, we were, uh, we're, we're seeing Jesus as he is on this hillside talking to these thousands of people 
who are all over this hill and, and this region around this uh, area where Jesus is speaking. And the, the hills roll in such a way there that it's easy to imagine these natural amphitheaters uh, that would have formed in these, these shallow valleys of, of uh, watershed down to the Sea of Galilee. And so it's easy to imagine sitting in the grass there and not a lot of shade, but there were trees and, and uh, lots of cypress and that sort of thing. And, and uh, Jesus spoke. I think it's important to realize that this is, the reason I call it a seminar is because I'm really sure that this was not something that happened in one day. Um, people in those days, don't, they didn't live like we live. In fact, most people in the world don't live like we live. This wasn't sort of a scheduled event where posters had been put up around town at the local meat market and in the post office and different places and say, be at uh, the hill outside of Capernaum at 9 a.m. for a presentation by Jesus of Nazareth that will end at five with a lunch break at noon. You know, that, that's what we do. That's what we do. That's not the way things operated there and in most parts of the world. The truth is that people probably gradually heard that Jesus was there and then they made, uh, made an effort to finish up whatever they were working on and then make the trip down there to Capernaum and the vicinity in order to hear Jesus. And so he probably took several days to say all of these things. He probably spoke for an hour or so at a time and then rested as people gathered and milled about. And, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but the Sermon on the Mount seminar probably had more in common with Woodstock than a hotel meeting where we have a special presentation. And uh, in reality, Jesus played the crowd in the most skillful way any public speaker ever did in all of time. He, he knew with absolute certainty that this was the moment when he was to share his agenda, his manifesto, and it was vital that this be done in a special sort of succinct way, but he also was aware that people had come from all over the region, from the Decapolis or the Ten Cities. They had come, even those uh, observers who had come from the home office of Judaism back in Jerusalem, they, he knew they were there. He knew all the people in his audience. Just as I look out over this audience and I see all of your faces and I know so many of you now and your stories, and, and, and he knew. He knew what he was looking at and he knew when he would say certain things and when he would withhold certain things. It's, it's clear to me. And part of the evidence that I give you for my premise is just that whole feeding of the 5,000 part of the story. After the people had been there several days, whatever food they had brought with them for the journey, whether it was a short journey or a long journey, had been depleted. And by the time they'd all been there to the point where they'd overcrowded the local towns, then all of the excess that was available in those towns had been depleted. And there was only one way that anybody was going to get fed after a certain point, and that was with a miracle. And that makes the whole miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 make more sense if you think about it that way. It wasn't until all the resources had been exhausted that it was now time for a miracle feeding. And so I'm sure that people were there for several days, that Jesus was there for several days. He probably went back to Peter's house and stayed the night during the seminar 
days and uh, the people that came visiting probably just slept in the open air because the seasons as they are in that region would allow for that sort of thing in the right time of year where you could probably just camp out <clears throat> in the field during the night. See that, uh, that Woodstock thing starts to make a little more sense. Some of you probably are thinking Woodstock. I realize there are people here who are too young to know what I'm talking about. Google it. Look it up on Wikipedia. Just don't associate some of what you read with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount because, you know, those of us who remember it will say, nah, that didn't happen at the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix didn't show up. I digress. So now Jesus is talking about prayer, and I think this is strategic. I think he waited until the right day and the right hour to tell each of the things that he said, and he's talking about prayer. And yeah, he talked about giving, I know, in this scripture, but I think if you, think, if you follow where I'm going with this, you'll realize that the, the prayer and the giving are essentially one and the same. He's saying the same thing about both of those activities of worship. He says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. And then he says, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, I know that when Jesus said these things, it must have offended some of the people in the audience. But I've got to be honest with you. I always am. But I've learned in this preaching business, in this pastoring business, that there are plenty of people that he's talking about who aren't offended because they don't even know that he's talking about them. I mean, seriously. I've stood in front of crowds and preached many times, more times than I can recall now, and I'm certain that there have been times when I've said things that really moved someone to elbow the person next to him because they were hoping they were listening. And I believe the same thing happened at the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that when Jesus picked out certain images of hypocrites and described them, it was his hyperbole again. It's his use of, of exaggerated images to get people to get the point, to understand what he's really driving at. Everyone in that crowd could think of someone in their community who was a little bit over the top in the way they presented themselves at the synagogue and prayed and the way that they acted. And we all know that those people generally are oblivious to the fact that they look a little absurd to the rest of us. It's true, isn't it? And so who do you think Jesus was talking to then? If he understood, just as I do, that a good speaker, and he was the best of the best, a good speaker doesn't try to single out somebody in the crowd and try to make a point just for them. A good speaker tells the whole group something the whole group needs to hear. And Jesus would have done the same. So he really wasn't singling out those people because they wouldn't have showed up for the seminar anyway. They already know everything. They've already got this down. That's why they want the rest of the world to know it. They don't come to the Jesus seminar down there at Capernaum. The people in the crowd who were offended were people whose consciences were still soft enough to be pricked. Their consciences were still guilty enough to recognize that they had been a little pompous at times in their self-promotion through prayer and public giving. But he also was speaking to us who think that we're not like that. Because in the hardness of our hearts, we find ourselves judging them. In effect, judging each other. 
So what Jesus is saying basically about prayer and the worship through tithes and offerings, for example, I believe is do it with a softened heart. Do it with an openness of mind that makes it an entirely personal affair between you and God. I think he can be taken literally and should be taken literally when he says, do your praying in private, do your giving secretly. But I also think that what he's really driving at here is, is don't take yourself so seriously when you're doing it. And I have to say that among the clergy whom I tend to be particularly judgmental of, there is a tendency to think that it's about us. And I've noticed in church there are some people that are that way too. And the truth is we all need to get it into our heads that what Jesus wants us to do is to make it about God. And to put ourselves second. And to think of this relationship with God as something much more personal than we do. And so when he says make it private, what he really seems to be saying is, is even when you pray in public, Pray as though you're talking privately to the one with whom you have this intimate relationship. This relationship with the God who loves you so much and so tenderly that he has gone to the extent that only God could go to make sure that you could be in his company for all eternity. This is the one to whom you're speaking. And so in that regard, his hyperbole doesn't really have anything to do with the showy, uh, uh, obnoxious person who makes a big deal out of their giving and their prayer, but it's really about you and me. It's about the private way that we pray. And so that brings us to another question we have to ask, and I'm going to ask you something very personally here. You don't have to answer out loud, but I'm going to ask you a very personal question. Do you talk to yourself? I do. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's self-criticism. Is that something you're familiar with? You say hateful things about yourself. You dummy, you know. As I'm waving my thumb in the air after smashing it the third time with the hammer, I'm saying all sorts of profound things about myself. And then there's just that self-conversation that happens when you're in the car and you're thinking about everything you got to get done today or how, what you're going to say to that person who owes you money or to that person with whom you have some other difference of opinion. And so we speak out loud and talk to ourselves a lot. I once heard Zig Ziglar say, it's okay if you talk to yourself. It's even okay if you answer yourself. The only thing that's bad is if you find yourself going, huh? If you talk to yourself and you answer yourself and it doesn't make any sense, you might have a problem. And that's probably more along the lines of those way that the people that we, you know, because talking to yourself can range from going through your shopping list as you're driving to the store to psychotic obsessions. And, you know, there's a big difference. But what we really need to be aware of here is, is how are we talking to God or are we just talking to ourselves and asking God to listen? Now there's where I think that Jesus is saying, this is a personal matter between you and God. I turn to Jesus as an example, especially in that Garden of Gethsemane scene, which I will talk about a lot over the years to come because 
as I've had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land, I can tell you there's only one place I've been in that whole journey that has moved me deeply to the point where I feel as though something cosmic is still there. And I, I you know, you got to understand I'm not a big mystic or anything. So this is really something that caught me off guard. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, I believe, began the process of redeeming us. I don't think it all happened exclusively on the cross. And the reason I say that is because of what I've experienced myself in that place. And what I recognize after studying that and trying to figure it out is, is that this is that moment when he who has been in union with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all that is known. I can't even put time frames on it. It's before there was time and space. He who was part of this trinity of God is separated for God, from God for our sake, for a, for a time. And it's interesting as you observe the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane because it's the only time you hear him praying where it sounds like the way we pray. The prayer of the lonely, the prayer of the abandoned, the prayer of the ignorant, the ones who do not experience God's intimate presence the way Jesus had always known it. In that moment in Gethsemane when he is now separated from the Father because he's bearing upon himself the weight of our sin, he is no longer welcome in his Father's house. And he pleads with God and he bleeds, he's so hurt. It's so lost because he'd never known this kind of separation from God. When I read that, I understand what he means for our prayer to be like. Because he wants us to pray to the Father the way he always talks to the Father, the way he always experiences the Father, except on that one occasion when he took our sin upon himself. And so Jesus wants us to have this intimate pillow talk with God. Forgive me for using that phrase if it's offensive to you, but think about it for a minute. When parents, uh, when, when couples who are deeply in love, who have been married for a long time and have a highly committed relationship, when, when they talk out in public or even at the dinner table, it's one way, but in the privacy of their bedroom, a man and a woman will talk about things that they won't talk about anywhere else or in no other way. And this is where they'll talk about their worries for the children or their concerns about the future or about the stress they're feeling at work or something. This is where they'll talk about how much they need that tender, loving person next to them. This is the kind of conversation that only happens at that most intimate and private location exclusively held by a husband and wife. And this is then the kind of conversation Jesus is always having with the Heavenly Father and the Spirit. It's that intimate, it's that personal. And when he says, when you pray, it should be like that, not a public babbling with multiple words and a lot of impressive gestures. He says, God doesn't really need for you to put on a big show. God just needs you to actually pray as though there is a personal relationship between you and the Father in heaven. And he's given us the Holy Spirit in order to sort of clear away the clutter and open the channel of communication so that we really have no excuse other than the noise inside our heads and our unwillingness to have that level of intimacy with God. When I became a father, 
my spiritual life changed exponentially. And this is what I mean. After I had children, I started seeing myself as a child in God's eyes, and I saw the tender way that I experienced my children. I saw how I looked at my children, how I listened to my children. And I remember when the children were little, and the kinds of things they talked to me about were cute and fun. They asked me things like, where does the sun go at night, Dad? Or they were asking me for things, you know, will you buy me this? Will you fix that for me? Can I have a snack? Can I go out to play? Those were the kinds of things my children asked me and talked to me about when they were little. But as they are now adults, even with their own spouses and children yet to come, uh, got one coming in February though, they talk to me in a different way and I talk to them in a different way. There's still this intimacy that can only happen between a parent and a child, and there's still this understanding of the sort of, I don't want to say boundaries too severely, but you know, there's this understanding that I'm the dad and they're still the child, but, but this is an adult person that I respect and admire and love dearly. This is a person that I am deeply invested in, and yet I look at them as a mature adult in the making, in the process of becoming everything that I think I have become and more, I hope. And I talk to them in a different way. And I realize that this is what Jesus is saying is stop talking to God like you're a toddler. Stop interacting with God as though it's just a question of whether God's gonna give you what you want or not. Or whether God's gonna take care of you when you skin your knee or not. Have a mature adult relationship with God the Father just as an adult parent has an adult relationship with an adult child. This is what he means when he says to take it to the Lord in private. Even if you pray in public, talk to God like someone who knows God. Even when you lead prayer in a meeting or in church services or something, let it be like that. Don't let your prayers be like the hypocrites that Jesus talked about. You know, I've heard preachers do this. They'll, they'll deliver a sermon and then they'll re-preach it in the prayer. Yeah, you've heard that too. Or at a funeral, a preacher will pray a prayer that's just downright insulting to the one who died. <laughs> I've heard that one too. And... Uh, I've been in meetings where the people who prayed at the start of the meeting pretty much laid out the agenda for the meeting and the outcomes they were expecting and then asked God to bless it. This is not the prayer that Jesus is talking about. This is the prayer of human beings who are simply looking from, to God for an endorsement or to acknowledge God to those who might take God more seriously than they do. When Jesus tells us how to pray, he means for us to take it seriously, not ourselves seriously. And then he teaches us those words we prayed, the Lord's Prayer. And I'll conclude by just saying this. We speak those words every week in our prayer uh, time and in the worship service, not because they're the end-all, be-all, but because if we can memorize those words together, then each of us leaves with Jesus' model for prayer burned into our memory 
And therefore, if we're asking ourselves, well, Pastor Dan says I'm supposed to pray more intimately to God. How am I supposed to do that? The answer is, is you've memorized a prayer that Jesus taught us. And if you'll just take that prayer and meditate on that prayer, if you could take an hour to say the Lord's Prayer, you might get it. This is a challenge for you. I actually learned that in the Catholic Church as a child. If you take an hour to learn to pray the Lord's Prayer and really imagine the various components that are described in that prayer, rather than just having one that you've memorized that feels really good. So why do we pray it every week? So that you'll memorize it. Why do we want to memorize it? So that when we pray in private, we have a structure and a model that God himself has given us for the ideal conversation with God. So take apart the Lord's Prayer in your next time of private prayer and see if you can stretch it out to an hour. It might fascinate you. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word for the wisdom that is imparted through it, for the love of Jesus, for you that is expressed in it. Now help us to, when we pray to really talk to you like we mean it, to have that kind of intimacy with you that we see in our Lord Jesus as he talks to you. We thank you for letting him be separated from you for a time for our sake. We can't honestly express how much it hurts us to think that he suffered so much for us, but then we thank you because if that's what it took in order for us to be at peace with you and to live through all eternity with you, then all we can say is thank you, Jesus. Amen.